Hola, ¿qué tal? It's Paul here with a new episode of the When in Spain podcast. Thank you for joining me. Got a great episode lined up for you uh, this week. Um, we're going to be talking about the Spanish Civil War and Barcelona in particular. Now, as many of you will know, Barcelona was one of the key centres of resistance to Franco's nationalist forces. And uh, George Orwell famously travelled to the city to fight uh, in defence of Spain's elected Republican government. And he later went on to write the classic uh, war memoir, Homage to Catalonia. And joining me in this episode to talk about the Spanish Civil War and Barcelona's uh, relationship or role in the Spanish Civil War is Nick Lloyd. Nick's been living in Spain for around 30 years and he actually lives in Barcelona. And for over a decade, Nick's been offering a unique walking tour experience in Barcelona called the Walking Museum of the Spanish Civil War. On Nick's tours, he guides guests around the city, taking in the most key and poignant sites relating to the Spanish Civil War. But he's branched out and been giving virtual Spanish Civil War tours as well. He'll be talking all about this in the episode. And one interesting thing that Nick uh, tells me during our chat is that over the years, he's collected numerous artefacts. Some have been donated, uh, many of which he's bought and acquired through various means. Artefacts which are all directly related to the Spanish Civil War. So his walking tour was effectively a kind of walking museum with two suitcases full of curiosities treasures from the Spanish Civil War. He'll be running through some of these amazing artefacts and their really fascinating stories behind them. And along the way, he'll be talking about the origins of the Spanish Civil War, uh, the defeat of the military rebellion in Barcelona, the militias, uh, revolutionary violence versus Francoist violence. Of course, we talk about uh, George Orwell. And Nick also recounts some really chilling stories from the uh, bombing raids of Barcelona as well. Later on in the episode, we talk about the fact that there is no museum specifically dedicated to the Spanish Civil War in Spain. There are bits and pieces scattered around uh, various museums in Spain. But we talk about the fact that there is no museum as yet dedicated to the Spanish Civil War, something which has obviously been uh, very controversial and a theme around which there's still uh, a lot of tension. So we discuss whether there is a need for a museum dedicated to the Spanish Civil War. So stay tuned for all of that coming up. Just before we get into the interview with Nick, I'd just like to say if you enjoy this podcast, please do consider supporting me and the work I do and putting it together. And you can do that on the crowdfunding website called Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash when in Spain. Okay, so without further ado, let's get into the interview with Nick. Um, he's going to be sharing some fascinating insights. Uh, if you're a history buff, you're into Spanish history, the Spanish Civil War and uh, Barcelona, then this is the episode for you. Vamos a por ello. Thank you. 
Nick, thanks for taking the time to join me on the When in Spain podcast. Hi Paul, thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about the Spanish Civil War with a particular focus on Barcelona and you actually have been running what's called the Walking Museum of the Spanish Civil War. It's kind of like a walking history class. We'll come on to that a little bit later but uh, first of all I wanted to talk about sort of how you found yourself in Spain. You've been in Spain for a long time and how you came to be guiding people around Barcelona talking about the Spanish Civil War? Well, I arrived here in about 1988 or something like that. For many years, I was teaching English and translating and doing sorts of other stuff. At a certain point, I was getting a bit bored with all that and I wanted to do something different. And several things happened at the same time. First of all, I got involved with wolf watching and I had a failed attempt, if you like, at being a wolf guide in Tamora, that's in the northwest of Spain, in the Portuguese border. La Sierra Culebra is the best place in the world, along with Yellowstone to see wolves. And I really enjoyed that process, but I just didn't, I didn't, I couldn't put in the hours, the field hours to, to become a proper guide. So it didn't really work out. But while I was doing that, because there's so many stories involved with wolves and the interaction with wolves and the landscape, it was there that I, I kind of thought, I want to, I want to work as a guide. And at the same time as all this was happening, something happened in my own neighbourhood about 30 metres from where I'm sitting. Yeah. We just bought the flat. They put up a plaque to this young photographer called Frances Bosch, who was born just down there. And they named our new local library after us, which is just around the corner. And he was 16 at the start of the war. And as it says on the plaque, he later becomes the only Spaniard called to declare the Nuremberg trials against the Nazis. And I just wow. became fascinated with his story. And it was because of Francis Bosch and how he gets, he goes into exile in 1939 from Franco's victory and ends up in northern France and being captured by the Nazis and taken to Mauthausen in Austria. And it was his story which really set me off, to be honest. Sparked um, your interest. It's fascinating. So Francis Boisch, he testified at the Nuremberg trials. He was a photographer, right? He had photographic evidence that he'd gathered. Well, what he did was that he, he, he's initially, they're all working with slaves, all the Spanish Republicans in Mauthausen and in the quarry mainly. And after a little bit, he managed to get a relatively good job um, working as a slave in the SS photo lab, not taking the photographs. That was done by the Nazi photographer, but, but, but make, doing the negatives. When they get instructions from the S, I think it was in early 45, if memory serves, to destroy all the photographic records because they knew they were going to lose the war, which is what actually what happens in every other camp. So him in another camp, and they secretly make copies of all the negatives, not the negatives, they, make, they, steal, they steal the photographs, sorry. They steal the photographs, they steal the negatives. Mm. And then the camp resistance, which is basically young Spanish lads between 12 and 16, actually 12 year old here, the only ones they allowed outside in the camp outside of the camp to work in a private quarry, smuggled them out, passed them to a very brave Austrian woman called Anna Pointer, who hides them in a garden wall. And wow. the remarkable thing is, those photographs today represent the largest photographic record of the Holocaust and Nazi barbarity, if we kind of separate those two things, while it was ongoing, because you know almost all of the photographs we have of the of those camps after the liberation and because of that he gets because he he then goes to an appointer's house picks up the negatives and then goes to france paris and then and that's where they're there yeah. just before we talk a yeah. bit more about your tour nick just for maybe the listeners who are not too familiar with this, the spanish civil war give us a brief overview of barcelona and its role and how barcelona 
fitted in to the Spanish Civil War? First thing you'd have to say that Barcelona was, was the only industrial metropolis in Spain in the in the 1930s, and Bilbao was quite big, but Barcelona really, because of the First World War in part, because the Industrial Revolution in Spain begins here in the, in the 19th century as a complex industrial base by the 30s. And it also, it, so it, it has a sizable middle class, perhaps unlike most parts of Spain, uh, certainly unlike most parts of Spain at the time, but it also has a very large industrial proletarian working class um, in which, which are, whose ideas are, the, the ideas of anarchism dominate in Barcelona amongst the working class. Specifically what happens is when the military leave the barracks, uh, the military, that's, that's Franco's supporters, and Franco and other generals who organised the coup against the Spanish Republic, which was the liberal democracy. When the military leave the barracks, groups of workers and police together, so it's quite weird, so actually anarchist workers and police together mm. fought together on the barricades and defeated the military in Barcelona. As, as Catalan historians do point out, it's true. Barcelona is the only city in the world where fascism was was defeated militarily on the streets. So we think about you know what happened in Germany or in Austria, Budapest, Hungary, every all those other places your know, fascism arises in Italy and in Spain, um, Madrid, Valencia, Bilbao. The military don't actually leave the barracks; they're kind of, kind of they're left cordoned inside the barracks and then defeated. Well, in here they leave the barracks fully armed and are defeated by this ferocious resistance from the working class and the Catalan police. In the streets of Barcelona? Over a day and a half, yeah. Over a day and a half. Most people will know that, uh, that Barcelona was, well, one of the key centres of resistance to Franco's nationalist uh, forces. And I suppose many people will know that uh, the uh, journalist and writer George Orwell famously travelled to the city to fight uh, in the defence of uh, the Republican government. He was with a militia called the Poons. Just to give a little bit of context there, very briefly, so the military defeated in Barcelona, but within that process, the workers in that chaotic day and a half stormed the major barracks with the help of soldiers who swapped sides, young soldiers, and get hold of about 35,000 weapons. And then they drive around the working class districts, such as where I'm sitting now, Pobla Sec, mm. and hand them out. And suddenly the working class were armed to the teeth. And yes, they wanted to fight against fascism. They wanted to defeat Franco's coup, but they also wanted to go further than that. And they, they, what they were fighting for was not really a liberal democracy, but they wanted a, a proletarian revolution, in this case, an anarchist revolution. And, and then over the next few weeks in Barcelona, the next few days, Barcelona is engulfed by an anarchist revolution and something like 70% of Barcelona's business industry Commerce is taken over by workers in the city and collectivized. And unlike in Russia, there's no overarching Communist Party taking over this process. It, it's really about workers' self-rule and local control. Now, the, the reason I mentioned all of this is because Orwell, when he arrives in Barcelona nine months later, this is what he witnesses. He witnesses the tail end of what they call in Spain the libertarian revolution, this anarchist revolution. Just for American listeners, libertarian in Spanish context of history means anarchist, not, not right-wing libertarian. Sure, yeah. But finally, this revolution is defeated nine months later by the Republican Democratic government. Let's look at how you designed your tours. Your tour that you, your main tour that you've been running for, is it, am I right in saying, for about 10 years? Um, yes, it's about that. 
it's quite a long tour, about four and a half hours with a few breaks um, along the way. But how did you plot these sort of key significant locations around the city? And um, just tell us about a few of them and how they, uh, why they are, why they have uh, particular significance. It's evolved quite a lot over the time. Initially, it was just a, 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 a kind of a normal tour in that sense. And it was looking for sites which would explain chronologically the events. So the, 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 the events beforehand, the, the origins of the war, where the actual fighting took place against the military. It developed in the last few years. This all happened because I, I get a lot of um, very interesting people on my tours from all around the world and all sorts of stories. And sometimes with personal connections yeah i can imagine so, yeah from the spanish republican diaspora from around the world their descendants and interesting stories and also quite a lot of descendants of the international brigade Thirty-five thousand foreign volunteers fought in spain approximately ten thousand died or nine thousand nines or something like that terrible figure yeah. but anyway and i get we, quite a lot of the descendants of those on the tours from all around the world actually Funnily enough, the last one I had was on a virtual tour, a guy called Julio, mm-hmm. whose father was the only Gibraltar in the, in the International Brigade. So that was the, really? The, no, the yeah. only Gibraltar? The only Gibraltar in the International Brigade? As, as far as I know, yeah. A few years ago, about four years ago it was, a woman came on the tour from the United States whose father was Cypriot, and she brought along his International Brigade membership card. The International Brigades were the, were the 35,000 foreign volunteers from around the world who came to fight against fascism in Spain. And in the, one of the bars we use, which tragically is closed down because of COVID, she brought it out and passed it round. It was such an emotional moment. Yeah. People were in tears and everything. And I thought, I can't replicate that. But look at the power of, the, of an object. It was a real object lesson in this to me. And then I then started to invest a little bit and um, buy, basically, and acquire sometimes given yeah. um, objects on the Spanish Civil War, which instead of illustrating things with a photograph or only with a photograph, I now illustrate them with an original object, some of which, you know, people could, many of which actually people could touch and even put on. I mean, for example, here I've got a, a helmet found at the Ebro battle site. This is a... The, the Adrian helmet, um, heavily uh, corroded, as you can see. Yeah. Probably one, this is French design, the type that sent to the International Brigade. So this is possibly worn by an International Brigade in the Ebro. That's, that's, that's incredible. Uh, here's here's a, an original New York Times, which I always take out in a rather dramatic place. It, it, the most dramatic and awful remains of the Civil War in Barcelona. But Barcelona's got far less than Madrid to see, oh. say because the walls... Madrid front was there. Was it was Madrid, right there. Barcelona. Yeah, exactly. But most of the war, the front was 300 kilometres from Barcelona. But Barcelona was, like Madrid, heavily bombed during the war. Amongst the first cities in the world to be systematically bombed from the air. There's almost 3,000 people killed in the bombing. And the most, perhaps the most dramatic site of the war in Barcelona is a place called San Felipe Neri, which tourists go to. It's a rather beautiful old medieval square. And on the side of one of the walls of the church are all these shrapnel marks. And it's the result of, basically, there were kids playing in the square. Often, a lot of them were actually uh, orphans, from Madrid, orphans from Madrid. They hear the air raid sirens at nine o'clock in the morning. And they rush into the square and hide in the crypt. And at 11 minutes past nine, the first bomb falls on the square. The crypt collapses 
the rescue services take ages to get here because the city's been systematically bombed that day. And then they rush into the square, they're pulling out the dead and the injured children. And then another bloody bomb falls in the square. 42 people were killed, 30 of them were children. As it says on two separate, three separate plaques down the square, it's called the, the, um, the San Felipe Neri Massacre. And who did the bombing? Well, it was the Italian uh, Air Force under Mussolini, because Franco gives Mussolini an air base on Mallorca to bomb uh, Barcelona. Basically. Barcelona, I see. Yeah. Wow, what a chilling story. So, so these, the, these young orphans had gone into the crypt of the church on the square to, to shelter. The, yeah. the church was bombed. The square was bombed. The crypt collapsed. They were trapped. Rescuers came and then tragically another bomb was dropped during the rescue attempt. They're not actually aiming to get the church because not even the Second World War was bombed that bombs that accurate. They're bombing an area and then if you come back an hour later, if you're lucky, you'll get the rescue services. It's called mm -hmm. the double tap. It's, a, it's terror bombing, but it's not actually specifically aimed at those specific children. This is reflected in the um, in the New York Times, which is the next day. This is an original copy of the New so York Times. So you have a copy there in your hands of the New York yeah. Times from the following day after this uh, massacre. Exactly. And uh, I take this to the square. And I always put it out at the opportune moment. And it says, rebel planes kill civilian hundreds in Barcelona raids, documented in the New York Times. We should just explain that the term rebel, within the context of the Spanish Civil War, as in the American Civil War, rebel are the, the right-wing insurgents against the liberal republic. Uh -huh, okay, uh -huh. not, not the revolutionaries of the left, it's sure. the opposite. Franco's, Franco's forces were the rebels. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure you know. Over 100 killed that day, and it talks about the bombing of of San Felipe Neri here. And it, it just makes it all the more dramatic to be able to illustrate this with an object. Incredibly powerful. And you've built up, uh, uh, from what I gather, uh, quite a substantial collection of artifacts. Uh, yeah, we've got over some really time. beautiful stuff, actually. Some really, initially I invested a bit. And then after that, for the last year and a half, I was funding it through postcard sales, which on mm -hmm. the tour, which kind of people would buy the postcard knowing that they would be contributing to the project. So you built up this collection of artifacts over over the years, um, funded through postcard sales on your on your tours. Let's talk a bit more about them. There's a few which perhaps people most take to. One is an, an, an original anarchist trade union card from 1936. Uh, I got it from the guy's granddaughter who had it in the drawer. And wow. the amazing thing about it is, when you open it up, the day he joined the union was the 19th of July, 1936. And that's the day of the coup in, in Barcelona. So he was so angered by this military coup, he goes and joins the anarchist trade union. For me, my personal favourite would be yeah. the, a, pair, a pair of albagatas republicanos. That's um, espadrilles. What do we call them? Um, uh, was it in Spanish? Esparta, no? Esparto. Or... Esparto, um, Esparto. So it's like kind of, like, what would you call it? Raffia, like so. Yeah, ra yeah. yeah. You, you listeners probably know what an espadrille is, sorry. Um, yeah, it's that kind of soft slip-on shoe made of kind of canvas and the sole is made of some kind of, it's almost like wicker or raffia, I'm not sure what yeah. we'd call it. And, they're, you know, they're dead comfy in the summer. I wear them as house slippers in the summer. It's a typical beach wear. Yeah, nice me too. Everything. Yeah, cool. But I don't wear them in minus 18 with snow in trenches in Aragon. And wow. this is what, you know, that's what Orwell talked about and Hemingway mentions them and all, and all the international brigaders. And, and they, they all talked about them having to wear these, these shoes. 
thought, well, this is how damn poor people were in Spain in the 1930s. And they are stamped, they're unused, but they're stamped with a Republican symbol. And it says on it, Suministro Militar, uh, military supply. Military uh, supply. And it just gives me an idea of the, the, the desperate struggle. I mean, to be honest, both sides did wear them, but they were more on the Republican side. And they have come to represent the symbol, the Rep- a Republican symbol of resistance. And there's, I don't know if you know the concept, Hard Rocky Punky album by Barricada. No. Called, called La Tierra Sorda. The Earth is, is, um, death. is Death. Yeah, the Earth is Death. Uh, there's a great song on that called Suelida al Bagata, which is the soul, which actually has a kind of nice pun in English, but it doesn't have a pun in Spanish, but it kind of works in English. It's almost like the, the base of the al Bagata, but there's a kind of a, it could almost be a pun yeah. in English, which would work. The soul of the al Bagata. The soul. And like... it's about it, this shoe, this footwear, representing this heroic struggle. In this case of the Mackies, those were the guerrillas who continued to fight against Franco after the war. That's what that song is about. But anyway, fascinating. That's fascinating. So that, that, that's one of my favourite objects. Another one which gets a lot of people, it's a cigarette lighter found at the Ebro. Embedded in it is a bullet. And you can see how the bullet, the cigarette lighter stopped the bullet. And it could have been from either side, to be honest. And I don't know, you know did it save this person or did they, did they die anyway? Or did they die anyway? Or, or, or whatever the case, though, or maybe it did save them, and it, whatever the case, it represents a dramatic moment in uh, somebody's life. Absolutely. So I imagine that the cigarette lighter, they would have had it in their, maybe their breast pocket. By the way, just as a recommendation, I think the best single tome, single book about Spanish Civil War is Helen Graham's A Very Short Introduction to the Spanish Civil War. You know that series of a yes, very short I, I, I have Yes, I have that book, actually. I have that book. They're, they're a fan, it's a fantastic series. Yeah, very... So, very accessible all, and very not, accessible. Not, not, too, not too exhaustive either. It's, uh, you know. it's one of those books which is great for beginners and an expert can get loads out of it. So I recommend it on, but on all levels. And she, she comes out with a line which is, um, those young guys from Central Eastern Europe, from the old Austrian-Hungarian Empire, whose lives had been made a misery by small-town burgers places like Hungary and Czechoslovakia, etc. The, the, you know, what they wanted to do, they wanted nothing better to get even with those fellows. And the way they could do that was to come to Spain. I think, mm, I think that really sums That's really, well. yeah, yeah, that resonates. That's yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, that's a great recommendation. And I will put a link to that in the show notes of this episode. And well, you have a book as well, which we'll talk about a bit later as well. So with these artifacts, just to, just to move on, um, you, you, you basically, you, during your tour, uh, you stop and you, or you produce these artifacts in the relevant location, or you also kind of take a, a kind of break, uh, as well, you were saying, and you sit down and you, you, you basically, you have a suitcase of these artifacts, which I imagine you, you take with you on the tour and you are uh, getting out these artifacts along the way, or you give uh, an opportunity for people to actually uh, look at them and for some of them to, to touch and hold them. So I've got stuff in my bag and a harvestack which I take out at opportune moments. And then pre-COVID, I used two separate bars, one of which unfortunately is tragically closed, and I'm not sure about the other one, so it's yeah. all a bit, oh, no, 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 I'm not sure what's going to happen now. Sure. But I had two separate bars, in each of which was a suitcase. So at each plate, we'd spend about three quarters of an hour sitting down, having a drink or something to eat, and talking through the suitcase. But the suitcases, the objects are ordered in kind of chronological or thematic order. No? So now I'm going to talk about the 
the, the Nazi involvement, so I'll take out a Nazi gas pass from the Spanish Civil War, for example, yeah. or which was not used, but, uh, for example, or an Italian helmet or, or this sort of object. So this is an, a tail fin of a German EO1 incendiary device. Incendiary it's, ah, it's part of an incendiary department you're holding right there in your hand now. It's the tail yeah. fin, yeah. This, I think, I believe this was found on the Madrid front, but this is exactly the same type used to destroy which Basque town? Guernica, I imagine. Yeah, so it's, yeah. it's an advert that kind of introduces you know, the bombing of Barcelona, a bomb bombing of Spanish cities. Because I, I it is about Barcelona, of course, the tour, but I used to try to do more about, a little bit about the war in the rest of Spain. And also, I do try to put it, I say I, because until a year and a half ago, until COVID, it was we, because me and my fellow guy, Catherine, who's Irish, but she's gone back to Ireland now, and I'm not sure if she's going to be able to return. I don't know. But Are there any other locations that are particularly notable or interesting in Barcelona that you would just like to talk about? Okay, so I start things in, in the famous Café Thoric, and then we just do an introduction to the origins of the war. We then, in Plaza Catalunya itself, Plaza Catalunya is the big square at the top of the Ramblers. Mm -hmm. There we talk about the defeat of the coup and what happens, how the coup is physically defeated. We've got lots of photographs there, which is sort of, you can see, okay, all right. So that's, you know, you can see those same buildings. There's still bullet marks here and there, which helps as well. Uh, you can still see the site. You can still see the telephone exchange, which Orwell talks about. Communist Party headquarters, which has re been rebuilt, but we're recreating things perhaps a little bit through photography in that square. So re-photography, taking a photograph, saying, "Okay, that's what it is now, and that's what it looks like then." That also helps holding up the photograph and saying, you know, "Standard guide stuff." Yeah. And then going down the Ramblers, and there we talk about Orwell's arrival, the, the Anarchist Revolution, Orwell's famous impressions of this in Homes Catalunya, which is Homes Catalunya is a great book. The problem with Homes Catalunya is it's emphatically not a history of the Spanish Civil War. It's the most widely read book about the Spanish Civil War, but it's problematic in the sense that you know, it's only about a very short period. It's only about Barcelona and a fairly uninteresting front militarily in, in, in Aragon, which I think is the best part of the book. But, but it, you know, it, the Spanish Civil War was so much bigger than that. And, you know, of course. Well, was just talking about. And there are all the problems with Thomas de Catalunya, although I do think it's a very good book. So I don't think it's a very good introduction to the Spanish Civil War, is what I would say. It's a good book to read a few books in. Yeah? I, I would agree. Critically. With that, yeah. mm -hmm. Critically, yeah. Um, I mean, one of the problems with Thomas de Catalunya is you get the impression reading it, and this is some book, something that later Orwell admits in letters and articles he writes in the 40s, is that the reason the Republic loses is because of of Stalin and the repression of the, of the anti-Stalinist Marxist left and the anarchist movement, all of that may or may not be true. Mm -hmm. but the real reason the Republic loses is one side has huge amounts of weapons and there's a dozen and, and, one, and with Britain sitting in the middle, not sitting in, pretending to sit in the middle, but actually being belligerently neutral on Franco's Frank side. And I think that that's the real reason. Sure. Is, yeah. Which kind of all that comes round to. Anyway, so we talk about all those impressions. We talk about what the anarchist revolution meant. Uh, we then, we talk about the violence on the side. We go to a church, outside a church. You can see the destroyed old photographs of Santa, in Santa Maria del P, the old photographs of the rose window smashed in and the mummies outside and the reasons for the anti-clerical violence. 
revolutionary violence, the violence on the side of the left, and very different in the sense of the violence on the side of the right, and violence on the side of the left was, um, was a reaction to the coup, a disorganised class-based violence, certainly. Um, but as soon as possible, the Republican authorities, and it has to be said in many cases, the revolutionaries themselves managed to stop the violence and, and, and condemn it, at least in Barcelona anyway. But, and, and the violence is stopped and condemned on the Republican side. On the side of Franco, it's on the, we should say on the side of the Republic, mm-hmm. it's about 50,000 people are killed or, or murdered behind the lines in revolutionary violence. Uh, it's a terrible figure. Um, but as I say, it is stopped and it is condemned. Whereas on the side of Franco's side, we'll never know. But the minimums and the maximums go up every year. I think we're about, it's somewhere between 150, 200,000, whatever about, it is. Yeah, about 150,000, the latest figure, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We, 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 yeah. We, the, we, the mini- as I say, it's the minimums and the maximums. They, every year they go up. And the difference there is that it, it, in, in, in this case, is it's state-sanctioned terror. It's the state directly behind the violence, supporting the violence, and then... I mean, the Republic even investigates the violence on its own side. On its own side. As the war, on its own side as the war goes on, which is one of the reasons why they know how many people died on the Republican side. I think Paul Preston, the great British expert on the war, he estimates it's 100 up, 100 down, that figure of 50,000, that accurate. Whereas here, we're wow. talking 50,000 up, 50,000 down. I mean, you know, we don't know how many died. We never will, you know. Then we talk about the international context of the war, the role of the international brigade, the role of Hitler, Mussolini, Britain, Stalin in all of this, the mm-hmm. role of also the role of women, important part, the uh, international humanitarian aid, that's very important. And we talk about the bombing of Barcelona, and then we come back to the Ramblers and we talk about Orwell returning from the front and how he's mixed up in the absolute mess called the May Days in English, or Etros de Mayo in Spanish which is the, 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 the clash between those in favour of a revolutionary society, the, the anarchists and the poom, and those in favour, on the other side, those in favour of a liberal republic. Liberal republic. Uh, the, the, Republican, the Republicans themselves and the cognists, actually. To finish, we talk about the exile, the violence on Franco's side, the exile, and that's where we finish. We're talking also about the almost 10,000 Spaniards who ended up in Nazi camps, 7,000 who died, and the story of Francis Bosch, which I began with. I actually always finish with the, the story of Francis Bosch. Of uh, Francis Bosch uh, that you mentioned at the, at the top of this episode. I wanted to talk um, about the fact that uh, there has never been a museum in Spain dedicated solely to the Spanish Civil War. Now, this is something that you were involved with or that you've certainly talked about uh, in the past. There was a campaign for, for many years to, to set up a museum in Barcelona, at least, uh, to tell the kind of full comprehensive story of the Spanish Civil War. And that, ca- that campaign sadly um, failed a couple of years ago. There are, as you mentioned, uh, scattered around Spain, little bits and pieces in different museums on the Spanish Civil War, but there's never been a museum dedicated to tell the whole story, as it were. Tell us a bit about that. Well, I think it was partly because people were asking me on my tours that very same question, why isn't there a museum? So myself and a few others, we started talking about this and we created an association. We, and it was a very wide-ranging association. We had academics, we, had, we also had anarchists, and we had two Catalan policemen on the same committee. I think it's the only association in Catalonia with anarchists and police on the same committee. <laughs> it is, Paul, the spirit of the 19th of July, 1936 in Barcelona. Anyway, right, so we, carried, right. we 
carried on and we got lots of meetings, but unfortunately we kind of got a little bit of international press. It didn't work out, the whole thing. The energies dissipated and we basically collapsed. Yeah. Having said that, things have changed since you know, I started doing the tours. Because I mean, for, for many years, it was certainly true that in Catalonia, there was more historical memorialization, museum work, than anywhere else in Spain put together. The Catalan government, whatever its reasons, its nationalist reasons, it all, clearly had done a lot more work than the rest of Spain put mm-hmm. together. And I don't think that's true anymore. Uh, I think the rest of Spain has been playing catch up. This is perhaps since the rise of Podemos, it's a sort of, you know, sort of putting pressure on authorities and something to do things. Because every month now, it's, I've lost track, to be honest. It seems to be, the, 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 this, it, was, it was a very short list a few years ago of memorialized museumification. Mm-hmm. Now it's a quite a long one. You know, every month there seems to be a new air raid shelter or some new trenches that are being restored. You know, and the oddest, oddest, not they're not odd for the people that live there, but from the point of view of Barcelona, very you know, distant places. And for example, in Teruel, but there is a major project, multi-million uh, euro project to build a proper museum to the Spanish Civil War. I don't know if you've seen the plans. It's, look oh, no, I didn't know that. I hadn't yeah. seen the plans. No, 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 in Teruel. Ah, okay. Yeah. So, Catalonia hmm. hasn't done it. Good on Aragon, I say. There is a need for this, do you think? Um, it's yeah, a... I mean, it's difficult. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. I mean, it's still there. This, the tensions are still there. Let's remember that there is, to this date, no overarching museum in the United States to the American Civil War. There's plenty, of, plenty of battlefield museums, but there's nothing, there's no overarching thing. But I, my idea is if you could do a documentary, you could do a museum. Although obviously it's slightly more complex to do a museum. But, I, you know, I think there's a moral imperative there. There's a bigger moral imperative to do something about the whatever figure it is, 100,000, whatever it is, people in mass graves in Spain. I mean, that's terrible that that still exists as this situation still exists. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. There certainly seems to be political will now from the government to do something about it, but that's all being pushed back because of COVID. I see what happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But those people can't, that, that, that situation can't exist. One of the things I do do, I've been doing the last six years now, a tour in Catalan, in addition to the English tour, uh, with Barcelona City Council and the Cemetery. Mm-hmm. And it's a monthly tour I do to the mass grave this is a place called the Fossa de la Pedrera, which would be the quarry grave in English, the Fossa de la Candera in Spanish, which I think is the most remarkable space of historical memory in Spain. And it's, it's been beautifully restored. And it, it, okay, it's the place where, after Franco won, there were 1,707 legal executions in Barcelona City, an untold number of extrajudicial murders, but legal executions since 1,707 uh, until 1951. And they're all then, they're, they're, they're shot on the, near the beach, a place called El Campo de la Boca, today's forum, if you know that. Yeah, yeah. Entertainment centre, that's where they were shot. And then they were, they were dumped in this mass grave in, in the cemetery. And it's, it's been beautifully restored, it wasn't in the 80s, and memorialized as a garden and as a historical place of commemoration and reflection. And very unusually for Catalonia, it's not a single flag. Um, really? Uh-huh. I think perhaps to, to contrast with the disgrace next to Madrid, the Valley of the Fallen. And I, and I think this is actually, there is, a, there is a little solution to the Valley of the Fallen there, because it is old photographs. The Frank regime, unlike 
the Nazis, I think perhaps the Franco regime was normal in this, mm-hmm. did not document its terror. The Nazis, it's kind of not usual to document your terror photographically for an authoritarian state. I don't, you know, I don't think Mussolini or Stalin did it particularly. No, no, no. Um, so the photographs we have from there are from the 60s, and there's one aerial photograph we, where when you walk in today, you go through a series of columns with the names inscribed of the 1,700 people because these are military executions, so they know the names. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Court marshals of one minute. Originally, though, there was a big cross there which dominated this landscape. And you think they removed the cross as an art architectural intervention to re-signify the place. So that's, I think, probably not my idea. As you know, people have said this before. That's the way to re-signify the Valley of the, the Fallen. The Valley of the Fallen here in Madrid. Yeah, remove that. Which is, remove that. Yeah, huge cross, yeah. Biggest in the world, isn't it? Because it, it, I'm not sure it must be. It's, it's huge, isn't it? You know, you see it when you fly into Madrid, you can see it from the, from the plane, yeah. And, and maybe that's where they should do the museum to the Spanish Civil War. Mm. It's, it's going to take some time. Matter of fact, there's probably room for more than one as well, actually. One benefit of COVID, I would say, for you, has, you haven't obviously been able to do your physical uh, walking tours, but it's allowed you to go online and given you more flexibility online. And you said you've kind of, you've expanded the scope uh, of yeah. your tours. Just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a very interesting learning process. I mean, for the first few months, I was lost, but didn't know what to do. Sure. Many people. And then sort of came together, started doing virtual tours. I started doing them initially on, you know, things that, you know, I, very comfortable on the international brigades or all well and then kind of allowed me to, to sort of move around and do things that you know to go to places that you know i haven't been for a long time or i've ne- certainly never taken people you know going to to Jarama and Bachite, down in andalusia and and actually move away a little bit from the civil war as well and talk about wildlife going back to talking about wolves again that was back to wolves and wildlife yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and just recreating them through sort of virtual tours with PowerPoint and using Google Street Maps and things like that. Fantastic. And I've, I've really enjoyed the um, the learning process of doing this. I've learned a hell of a lot in the last year, getting outside my little Barcelona bubble. <laughs> um, I, have, I have to say my knowledge, because my, I've always been interested more in the, in the social history of the war, the, the political history, history mm. and the sort of um, so the role of women and children as well. Um, and then the international aspects, but my military knowledge of the Spanish Civil War was absolutely shocking. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that, that has improved radically because to the last year because of just having to research tours that it, you know, to, yeah. um, go to battle sites and things. Yeah. Um, I've really enjoyed, I've, I've, it's actually, you know, meeting people online and seeing them week after, you know, week, after week in different topics, it's kind of almost yeah. feels like you're with them. Yeah, you kind of built, you've almost uh, built a little, built a little uh, community of like-minded yeah. enthusiasts, yeah. you might call them, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you, yeah. and you've also, uh, you've also written a book and you have another one in the pipeline as well. Uh, tell us just a little bit about those. Uh, the book I wrote was, uh, is five, six years ago, was Forgotten Places, Barcelona in the Spanish Civil War, mm-hmm. which is uh, about 400 pages. It's partly a history from Barcelona City from the point of view of the war, starting in the 19th century, sort of working class city, etc. Mm-hmm. And then it's a guide to the site. With, and not just this is what I do in the job, really, is using places as an excuse to tell stories. So you go outside a certain cafe, it's the story of 
of uh, Ramon Mercader, the man who murdered Trotsky, for example, and that allows you to give that story, or Barcelona, or the zoo in the wall, sorts of, you know, different places and different stories. After that, I thought it'd be dead easy to write a second book. But about... It's like the infamous, infamously difficult second album, isn't it? Uh, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, that's actually true, actually. I think it's because I wasn't, my focus wasn't clear, and I was going to write a book about the wild back of Spain, am I going to write a book about uh, travelling around the history of the Spanish Civil War today, the travel bike? And in the end, what I'm doing is combining sort of both those two things, and the, I've been doing virtual uh, road trips uh, recently. I've done one on the whole of Iberia, five, six parts. Mm-hmm. And I did one on Catalonia, which was a four-part road trip. And I'm currently, I've got that one to do, I'm doing an Andalusian road trip. Actually. Oh, fantastic. I actually used your, I listened to your, your, your Jerez, your Sherry episode was very useful. I thought, I, oh, with, I, Annie, I, with Annie B. Uh, that, yeah. It was wonderful. And I actually, I, I robbed a couple of things from that, but I did Well, oh, that's it. okay. And then, so all these different things coming together, sort of, and, to, and these tours, which are basically the thread is the civil, is the civil war historical memory, and also the presence of Francoism in the landscape, and because it's not just two and a half years of war; it's everything that happened afterwards. Afterwards, as well. of the, course, yeah. You, you know, this whole you can't Francoism just just impregnates so many things in Spanish society, mm-hmm. and so. But it's also I've been doing talking about the sort of the Muslim history of Spain and all sorts of other areas as well, food, etc. And so what I want what I want to do now is I'm, I haven't got the, the title yet, but it's something like Iberian road trips or Spanish road trips or something like that. The first one will be on Catalonia, perhaps Catalonia and Aragon, and it's a series of instead of it's a kind of a guidebook, but it doesn't have where to eat or what or, or where to stay, but it's more, more stories associated with places. Mm-hmm. And just to give you one little idea, okay, one section which I've been working on yesterday. So I'm okay, in the yeah. north of, I'm in the north of Catalonia. I'm in Girona, going to Ullastret, which is uh, an Iberian one, one of the, the best remains of the Iberian civilization in Spain, actually. Uh, the Iberians that went all the way from the south of France down to, I think, Cadiz. It's very interesting. It's, they've got a little museum there. With so got, in the museum, I saw me went there a few months ago. And <laughs> the thing he most enjoyed with the the skulls because what the Iberians did, they used to nail the heads of their of their of their enemies to their front doors. And we've got these skulls with na- with nails pierced through them. <laughs> Quite dramatic, anyway. Is that this Iberian bit, Yeah, you imagine kids loving that. Iberian village, and then from, we tell that story. And from there, we go on to Emporias. Emporias is the uh, was the the, 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 the site of the where, where the Greeks arrived into more or less in, into the Iberian Peninsula, sixth century, and established a colony there, a trading colony. So there's this fantastic Greek and, and Roman remains, and the mm-hmm. Greeks were, were trading with the Iberians. Okay, and then the Romans invaded in the context of the Punic Wars, as in the the, um, third century BC, the war against Carthage, when Hannibal and his famous elephants leave Hispania to go and attack Rome, there's a counter movement to cut off their supply lines from Rome by sea, which enters the peninsula at at Emporius. And then there's a few years of the Punic Wars and they defeat Carthage. So, and then they begin their 200 year conquest of Iberia. I think it's quite interesting actually because it took them 10 years to take Gaul 
and 50 years to take what they took of Britain, and it takes them 200 years to take the Iberian Peninsula. Quite remarkable. In fact, that is remarkable. That's because of the relief and also because of the very complex political um, complexion of the time. There's lots of tiny little city states and tribes yeah. they had to and, one by one. And like you said, um, you know, Spain was you know notoriously difficult to navigate and to, to traverse, really, isn't it? He, he, you know, until the late 19th century, but the railways, yeah, mm. that's absolutely the case, yeah. So for the Francoist historians, Emporius is it. That's where it all begins. Mm. You know, that, that's that's where the conquest. That's where the imperial Rome enters Iberia. And there's this quote from a fascist magazine from a newspaper from 1942. I'll just read it. No, it's from a book. Sorry, mm. history of the history of the Spanish Empire, 1942. It says there are some people born with a God-given destination to certain actions. Our people, meaning Spain, felt quite soon when Rome yoked Spain to its cart, the imperial vocation of its destiny. This great Roman mission annulled our innate tendency to disintegrate, and it created, at least among the noble and ruling classes, an aware, united and organised people to carry out the task of an empire. When penetrated and dominated by Christianity, its religious character will endure and forever, and its universal actions. Really creepy words, but the point being that this is the idea of this totalitarian project, mm. which in the end failed. The Francoists had a totalitarian project for Spain, which failed. By the 50s, it becomes something else. It becomes a bit of a mishmash authoritarian dictatorship. Absolutely. But, yeah. but at the beginning, they had a real plan for it and, and they controlled everything for history archaeology every aspect of, of society they would control so, that, that, so that's one aspect of, and then another thing is and this is something when i found out this i got real shit so as you know i'm sure ancient greece and ancient rome were slave-based societies their mm -hmm. economies in part were driven by slavery mm -hmm. but what they didn't know is slavery returns to emporius from the 1940s and through the, through the, in, in the sense of Republican prisoners forced to work in the archaeological digs. Of course, as I'm sure you know, the, the, the hundreds of thousands of Republicans were used in the, in the building of dams and motorways. Of course, and, of course. Yeah, I know. So in the 1940s, they were... In... Until the mid-1960s, there were Republican prisoners being used at Emporius and other archaeological digs. And so the walls of Emporius, which are quite sturdy, which surround the site, were built, we can presume, by Roman slaves or Greek slaves. And they were disinterred, those walls, by, by Republican, Republican slaves. slaves. And I, wow. I just got a really <laughs> shiver when I read that. And suddenly that site just becomes something else to me. Absolutely. What a tragic circle. So it's that kind of story, but also linking in wildlife and things, and I'm some way off. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, I think you're onto something there. Nick, thanks for joining me on the When in Spain podcast. Appreciate your time today. Thank you for sharing your, your insights. Pleasure, Paul.
so that was Nick Lloyd. I hope you enjoyed his uh, fascinating uh, insights into the Spanish Civil War. If you'd like to find out more about Nick, head over to his website with more information about his tours. At the moment, he's not giving uh, face-to-face walking tours. But as he mentioned in the interview, he is organising virtual tours. If you'd like to find out more about that, head over to thespanishcivilwar.com, thespanishcivilwar.com. That's his website. Loads of information, photographs there. Nick also told me that he's actually more active on Twitter. So if you'd like to follow him on Twitter, the Twitter handle you need is at civil underscore war underscore Spain at civil underscore war underscore Spain. Nick also has another website uh, dedicated to his other love, which is uh, nature. And uh, it's a guide to the environment, climate, wildlife and geography of Spain. That's called Iberia Nature. And the website you need there is Iberia Nature. And finally, Nick also mentioned uh, his book, Forgotten Places. Forgotten Places, Barcelona and the Spanish Civil War. Uh, That's available in print and on Kindle. And you can find that on Amazon or all of your usual good online retailers. So that will just about do it for this episode. Thank you for joining me. Uh, Just to say, if you're new to this podcast, and maybe you weren't aware, uh, When in Spain has a presence on all of the usual social media platforms. So go and give us a follow on Instagram. The handle is at When in Spain 1. Lots of photography from around Spain and Madrid on there. You can also find us on Facebook with the When in Spain Facebook group. So just search When in Spain on Facebook and uh, come and join our community of like-minded Spain lovers there and of course don't forget there is a website which accompanies this podcast series and the address you need is wheninspainpodcast.com on the website you'll find the back catalogue of episodes and uh, well on the website a bit more detail than the normal show notes you find on the podcast platforms where you listen there are photographs links and a bit more uh, information related to each podcast episode okay so thanks for listening wherever you are around the world and I will be back next week with a new episode of the When in Spain podcast. Until then, hasta luego. 